Hi, welcome to The Known Podcast. I'm your host, Mandy McDonald. On today's episode, I'm really excited for you to hear from my friend, Allison Brown. She is a co-founder of Mission Lazarus, which you've heard me refer to before. Mission Lazarus is a nonprofit organization that serves the poorest of the poor in countries like Honduras and Haiti. Allison is somebody that I met several years ago while serving in Honduras, and I loved her from the moment that I met her. She talks at the beginning about feeling ordinary, and I've got to tell you that she is extraordinary. At first glance into Allison's life, you see someone who is very intelligent and who uses their gifts and talents to serve the least of these. What you'll hear today is that Allison herself has been treated poorly in her life and still suffers the effects of other people's actions. I will tell you, our conversation gets pretty intense at times, but what God has done with her and is doing in her life is amazing and is her true story. Like I always say, please show her your love. Thank her for being so candid and open with her struggles and encourage her to continue the work that the Lord has called her to do. I want to thank all of you who have been listening to these incredible stories. Thank you for sharing the stories with other people. Thank you for following on Instagram and Facebook, for subscribing to the podcast, for leaving reviews, which is a great way for other people to know that these stories are out there. If you are not already subscribed or following in all of the places, simply go to my website, mandymcd.com. And you can find links to all of the things so you never miss a story. So without further ado, here is my friend, Allison Brown. I'm really not sure what my story is, (laughs) but I'm going to be as candid as possible. I And the reason I say I'm not really sure what my story is, is that I've always, the majority of my life, and I'm 41 years old now, but the majority of my life, I've really just thought that I was very common, very ordinary, very nothing stands out, nothing special hmm. kind of person. And and even saying that and hearing myself say that, that really kind of sounds kind of sad and derogatory. Yeah. And I, I don't really mean it that way. I just sort of matter-of-factly just kind of thought I'm just this generic person. I was raised in a Christian family. I'm one of three girls. I'm in the middle. And so anything that was extraordinary that was going to come out of our family was going to come from my older sister <laughs> because she is a genius and and she's amazing and she did everything first. And then and then my younger sister just got credit for being the the baby and for being cute. And so it's yeah. just kind of, you know, when you're in the middle, you you don't necessarily, I mean, I just didn't, I just, I was okay with who I was, but I, I didn't really know how would I, how would I describe myself to someone else? And so even now at 41, for somebody to say, well, introduce yourself <laughs> or describe yourself, I'm like, well, um, yeah, so my name is Allison. <laughs> I'm, I'm married. I've been married um, for 16 years. Um, to my husband, Jared, and we've got two kids, 
But I, I guess I would say I don't really see myself as just ordinary and mm. generic now, but for a really long time I did. Mm. One of the most significant things that happened to me early on in childhood was when I was around three years old, I was sexually abused mm. by I'm not sure whom. Oh. I'm not sure whom. I know that that abuse ended when my family moved out of state. Mm. So it, it wasn't familial abuse, but I think it was a friend of the family. But I, even to this day, I, I don't know who it was who abused me. Mm. The abuse stopped when when we moved out of state. And then I kind of led just a, a regular life. Everything mm. was pretty stable we moved a couple of more times, so I think that I, I ended up going to like 12 different schools by the oh, time wow. I'd, I'd graduated from high school, and my dad had, had changed jobs. He became a preacher when I was 12 years old, and so we moved several times as we worked with different congregations, and those moves were out of state, and that was a little bit hard. But it was also kind of exciting. So I think mm. one of the things that I do realize about myself is that I, I really didn't mind change in new circumstances. I, I kind of in, enjoyed, I had a curiosity for living in a new place. And mm. so I'd say for what developed later on in my life, that that was a strength to have had experience in starting <laughs> over yeah. several times. In high school, I struggled with depression. I struggled with anxiety. I never really knew what that was about. Mm. I didn't really even know how to identify it. But now when I look back, it's like, oh, yeah. That's what, uh, was that's what that was. <laughs> that's what was going on. Yeah. Um, and my parents didn't really recognize that either. I, I didn't really get any help for that. And mm. so um, you go on and move on to college and kind of have more of the same. But I'm starting to get this gnawing feeling that something is wrong, but I have no idea what's wrong. And starting to get this feeling that I'm different from other people and not really know what that's about. And and it's like, well, of course, everyone's different. Everyone's yeah. special. <laughs> so kind of like, well, so what? I mean, everybody feels that way. But it was not a reassuring feeling. It was a, an unsettling, disquieting sense of unease. And I still didn't know what it was. But I decided that I needed to figure this out, and the best way to do that would be to study it. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to get my, my master's degree in psychiatry. I ended up going into nursing, became a registered nurse. Then I studied psychiatric nursing to become a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. So all of that was really motivated by not really knowing what was going on with with myself, but also always having had an interest in in medicine, in health, um, in children, and it just kind of put all of those things together for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like I've I've. So I'll tell you a little bit about my my extended family. Um, my Mother was from um, just an affluent Southern Christian family, mm -hmm. very, um, very tidy lives, mm -hmm. very predictable. 
lives. Um, so a lot of stability there that I remember very fondly um, and feeling that stability at my grandparents' house and really appreciating that. Yeah. On my dad's side of the family, my grandparents were career missionaries. They spent their entire careers as missionaries in Taiwan. And so my dad was was raised overseas in China, speaks Chinese, felt very at home in China, more at home in China than he did in the U.S., but he came back to the U.S. Um, for college and he met my mom and married her, the, the girl from Middle Tennessee, <laughs> and so started started our family. But something that was really wonderful for me as a memory is that I, I spent a lot of time with my mom's parents and really enjoyed that stability. I didn't get to know my dad's parents all that much because they were overseas in this land, you know, so far away with a completely different culture. But when I was 10, we got to spend a summer in Taiwan. And Mm. so I remember that that was fascinating to me. And I realized that I really love other cultures. I don't mind feeling out of place or being like, I don't really know what's going on. I just felt like I was, I loved absorbing everything that I was seeing, even if I didn't understand it. Language, that language barrier was just interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I just knew that everything that I that I had known about the world, I didn't realize, oh, it's so much bigger yeah. than than Middle Tennessee and <laughs> even the United States. And here I am halfway across the world and there are all these like amazing new things that now exist in my mind that I I just didn't even know before. And so that was a big influence on me as it as it turns out later in life. And spending that time with my grandparents, it's the only time that I'd ever spent a significant amount of time mm-hmm. with them. And they're really just special people. They say that girls get their paternal grandmother's DNA. Like they get a they get a whole lot of their paternal grandmother's DNA. And huh. I feel like I've got a whole lot of of my grandmother in me. She's amazing um, at language and culture and just a really, really talented, wonderful woman. They're in their 90s now. They live in Memphis. They're they're still (laughs) hanging on, and they're still just great people. But I think that's where I've gotten my affinity for language and Mm -hmm. then my love of different cultures, which has really served me as, as an adult because a lot of my adult life has been spent overseas too. I'll actually in a missionary capacity. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't stray too far <laughs> from the tree. <laughs> um but that was definitely um really out of the, out of the ordinary. It breaks the mold. My uh the contrast between kind of my my dad's family and my mom's family is so great <laughs> that it's it's really just really funny to have to have chosen that kind of radically it, and and not maybe not stable, mm-hmm. unpredictable life because um, it, it seems like well if you could choose one over the other obviously you would choose stability the easy one <laughs> <laughs> yeah the 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 conforming one or or whatever but I just I, I guess I just wasn't made for that so as it turns out when I graduated with my master's I graduated as a nurse practitioner um, and I went on a mission trip. In my head, I was going because I was graduating and I was about to start launch my new career and 
real career women don't have time for things like <laughs> like mission trips. So this would be kind of my last one yeah. before I started, you know, real life and got into the real world. I had to borrow some money from my mom in order to go. <laughs> and later I asked my mom, why did you why did you let me borrow that money? And she said, Well, I thought you were kind of in a spiritual slump. I just thought it was something you needed to do. <laughs> um, so as it turns out, she she gets credit, I guess, for for me meeting my my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I met him on that trip. He was hosting our our mission team, keeping us safe and making sure that we um, didn't eat in the places that would would give us Montezuma's re- revenge <laughs> or anything like that. And um, so that's how I met my husband, Jared. Uh, he was living in, in southern Honduras in Choluteca um, when I met him. When we met, I, I thought, this is a person that I've never met anybody like this before. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of integrity. I see integrity like embodied mm-hmm. um, or in action. And I'm like, integrity is usually a random concept. It's not, <laughs> it's, you know, it's not tangible, but mm-hmm. here I am seeing, caring about other people in this very tangible, here's my hands, here's here's my body, here's my, here I am serving in this way. And it was just really intriguing. And so I decided I want to stay in touch with this person because I've never met anybody like mm-hmm. this. We ended up getting married and he, so he brought me to Honduras, and then then that's that's where my married life started. Mm-hmm. My instead of launching a successful career in the U.S., which had been uh, my intention, I I was accepting and accepting this man. I was accepting his mission, his mm-hmm. passion, and his calling in that country in Honduras, and so. Suddenly, just the ordinary middle child of the family was extraordinary in some way. I mean, like I was, I was out of the country, living out of the country, and you know, wanting to do great big things. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like we we got married, and three weeks later, I I moved to Honduras. Jared already had a house there, and moved down with like the the two bags I was able to bring on my flight. <laughs> yeah. And we got started with me trying to kind of integrate into the life that he was already building. And so I was a bit behind the curve. I didn't speak Spanish very well. I had gone to language school a few months before. And so I had basic language skills, but nothing more. It was really intimidating. You know, immersion is the best way to, to mm-hmm. ever learn a language. And so that that's what we did. Moving forward, there were just a lot of opportunities that that God showed us, uh, opportunities to partner with other churches and other uh, influential leaders of the church to get involved in, and we just kind of jumped in. After we'd been there, after I had been there with Jared for two months, we kind of confronted our, our first big, big hurdle as a couple, and... Um, it was a decision to to bring an infant into our home, an infant who was sick and needed a placement. And we became aware of that situation, and it was it was really a, a defining point for my life mm-hmm. because we were doing a medical brigade in a village, and um, a mother came and brought a sick infant. There wasn't anything that we could do to help this this baby that was only three months old. Mm. But I knew that if we sent 
the mom away that the baby was just going to die at home. And so somehow I had, had turned away for a second to, to talk to someone. And when I turned back around, the mom and the baby were gone. And I was like, where are they? Mm. Where'd they go? And they were leaving. And so I remember I ran out. Uh, we were we, we had set up in a in a public school building. I ran out of the building and stopped her and, and said, Look, we, we don't have any any medicine. We can't make your baby better, but if you go home, she's she's going to die. Mm. Let us take you to the hospital, get you into the hospital, or there's no chance at all. And so that's what we did and and then Social services got involved. The The mom was not in any, didn't have the means to take care of herself, mm-hmm. let alone a baby. Um, and they got involved with the entire family and made a decision that the child couldn't continue with, with the family. And then they needed a place for this child to go, and there was no place for this child to go. So... And the child was very, very ill. The child, um, the infant was in the hospital for five weeks. Mm. And I remember that at the brigade, what I thought was, what I remember is that I was appalled. I was appalled at my own response to say, there's nothing Mm. that we can do for your baby. Um, Like, it scared me to say that. It scared me to hear myself saying that. And then... I. It made me angry, and I and I got really mad at myself. Like, so you 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 just want to move down to this country with with all of the training and all of the resources and all the opportunity that that you've had, um, even with all of your wealth mm-hmm. intact, and and come and live in this country. And if it's not an easy thing to fix, you're just gonna pass mm. and say you're sorry. And give them your condolences, and you're, is 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 my conscience going to let me do that? Yeah. And I had this huge conviction that like I cannot live in this country. I cannot live with myself living in this country if if I'm only going to do the things that I know I'll succeed at. Mm. If I'm only going to be able to, if I only accept handling the things that I know I can get good results from. Yeah. And so it was. It was it. It defined for me why I was there. Like right there in that moment, it was like, look, anybody, anybody with your training can come here and and hand out medicine and do little, little medical brigades and and do the easy stuff and send the hard cases away and go home at the end of the day, go to your warm bed, mm. go eat your food and get up the next day and do it all over again and never have a second thought about all those people who did come for help and were turned away. And I thought, no, that's that's. I'm not willing to do that. I will not live in this country, and be that person. Yeah. Because I can't live with myself, and so that's why I ran after the family. Because mm-hmm. all of that was happening, and I was like, no, no, I I'm rebuking that. Like I I do not accept that. If I'm here, I'm going to look the hard stuff in the eye, and I'm going to say. I don't know what we're going to be able to do, but you're not going to have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. So let us do this together. And that has served me as a nursing philosophy, as a life philosophy Mm -hmm. um, for serving others, but even for myself, just to say, this hard thing, let's not bury it. Mm -hmm. Let's, 
let's look at it together. No, I don't know that it's going to be better at the end of the journey. That, <laughs> but we're going to I promise we're, we're going to, well, I'm going to go with you. Yeah. And so you don't have to be alone through it. And, and so that really solidified for me in that one moment. And that infant ended up becoming our daughter. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was a really long process. But th- that was the first fight that Jared and I had because I said, he didn't know about me having that revelation of being <laughs> like, no, I'm going to bring bring it all on. And I, I don't know that I can guarantee a good outcome, but I promise you I'm not going to turn you away and make you face it alone. And so it's the willingness to be present, even even to be present and say, hey, okay, I'll be powerless with you. If you're yeah. powerless, and maybe I'm powerless too, but but at least we're together. Mm-hmm. Like, would you rather be alone in the uh, be be alone in the dark, or would you rather have somebody else's hand to hold mm-hmm. if you have to be in the dark? I was like, Jared, um, I think what we need to do is we need to we need to bring this baby home, and he's just like, uh. <laughs> and I I said, well, well, what are we here for? We're we're mm-hmm. only willing to do you know the the easy convenient stuff. From eight to five, is that when we're good Christian missionary people from eight to five? And then the rest of the time is, is our own. And so we, we can do with it what we want is we have a home. We, ha- we are a family. We have this to offer. That's what this child needs. Mm-hmm. And this child doesn't have a place to be. On, on a practical sense, I was really concerned. This, this baby that, that's getting better is just going to get sick again the longer he stays in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and so... We fought about that for probably over a week, but but Jared was like, "You're right, you're right. I want to serve, and I I can't really put the limits on that." Mm. And so we we brought her home, and she she became our daughter, and that was just a huge thing mm-hmm. for us. Becoming a parent, period, is a huge life change. But becoming a parent in a foreign country to a child that you were not preparing for for nine months and. <laughs> Who is sick, and yeah, that's that's a pretty big transition. It it was so unexpected. <laughs> you know, I'm just I'm so glad that that's mm-hmm. that that was the outcome. We didn't know what the outcome would be. I cannot separate when I look at my daughter. I can't separate that moment when I felt like God was giving me. Or God was convicting me to mm. to, to figure out what, what was my philosophy of care? What was I there for? Why, why am I on this earth? And yeah. to, to declare just to myself, I'm not going to be afraid of these unsolvable problems. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to claim to have the ability to, to solve them, but I do have the ability to accompany and so, like, I can't separate when I see her rem- always remembering th- this. That's where that belief was born. And and so when I, every time I look at her almost, you know, mm-hmm. like, it, it renews that in me that that is good. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is good. And, and a reminder, you know, not, not to ever be so afraid of big problems that I would rather leave someone alone in the dark. Mm. That's good. So I'm I'm very, very, very grateful to our daughter. Her name is Soul. Mm-hmm. Um, 
She's 16. And she's beautiful and wonderful. She <laughs> she is a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful person inside and out. Um, and she has a brother mm-hmm. um, who's 14. And he, he Jared likes to say he's our fault. He's our biological our fault. Uh, <laughs> kid. Um, he's a cool guy, too. <laughs> and you know that yes. experience that experience uh was an interesting one for me too because mm-hmm. I was really worried and I told Jared Jared I'm really really I, I just I'm so anxious I'm so worried because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to love this child as much as I love soul. <laughs> yeah. And which again is a laughable thing when you're a parent like that's a really laughable idea. But honestly, I I didn't quite get yet that that love has no bounds. Mm-hmm. It, it's multiplicative. It's exponential, yeah. and there's always room mm-hmm. for more love. And of course, that was not an issue when he was born. And it and it it really helped me to to experience that. And then just to be able to chuckle at, at how absurd that, <laughs> that worry was. We lived for many happy years in Honduras. Mm-hmm. Did a few things while you were there. Did some stuff. <laughs> did some stuff. One of the things that also I say I can't separate from from soul as inspiration is that it opened our eyes to the to the need of children in the region where we were living. That there really weren't any options uh, when children needed uh, a new home for whatever reason. Whether whether they were double orphans, whether there was extreme negligence in the home, whether they needed a new home situation, most of those children, they didn't have placements or places to be. And so they were shipped off to different areas of Honduras, mm-hmm. far away, which means like n- it was it wouldn't be possible for any family connections to come and visit or anything like yeah. that. And we we thought that is really terrible. And so one of the things that, that we did was begin to chew on this idea of opening a, a, a children's home. Mm-hmm. And eventually we did, and with a lot of trepidation, which <laughs> you and I had said earlier, you get this calling mm-hmm. and and you're excited, but you're also scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> and you do have the option because God gives you the option mm-hmm. to walk away. And he's not going to, to uh, make you feel bad for that. He will respect your choice. Yeah. But he's offering opportunities, these opportunities that are are big and scary to us sometimes. But I, I remember that trepidation of being like, what are we insane? <laughs> what are we doing? We've got no business opening up a children's home and being responsible, legally responsible for, you know, a number of children and guarding and, and rearing up their their souls mm-hmm. and, and their lives and can can we do that well and saying yes to that and many times I have felt like oh geez we never should have done this I have felt that way really? yeah absolutely there's always challenges I think one good thing is when when one person loses heart You've just got to search for somebody else. You've got to search for somebody to encourage you when you've lost heart. Yeah. Because you you'll you you will get it back. You'll get it back a lot faster if you can seek some wise and encouraging people. Because sometimes you're too close to the situation and, and you just don't feel or don't see the hope that is there. So yeah, we did some stuff, but I'll I'll say I was managing a medical clinic. Uh we were opening the children's home, managing the home. There were I'd say some stressors on us down there. Um, One of the stressors was that a uh, pedophile was living in our region, and we knew he was preying on underage girls, and we couldn't do anything about it. 
um, until one of the victims came forward and let us know what was going on. When that happened, we helped her fill out the police report, mm. um, got all of that legal stuff going. Then there were threats against our family and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. But really, I'll finally get to like <laughs> the crux of it is um, the that was very a very triggering experience for me. Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, kind of you'd think even glossed over the fact that early, early in my life, when I was three till about five, I experienced sexual abuse and and apparently didn't really suffer very many ill effects of it mm-hmm. other than a little bit of depression and anxiety up into my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Well, um, but I had told you I had that gnawing sense of of something, and I'll tell you, it really felt like I really identify with the the story, the princess and the pea. Yeah, because I'm like, you know, when the princess was sleeping on that tall, tall bed, and she had like twenty mattresses on top of the bed, but she was like, there is something hard. What? <laughs> I, why can't I go to sleep? There's something not right. Mm-hmm. But but she's looking around. She can't figure it out. I mean, they're treating her like the royalty she is, 20 mattresses, good grief. I mean, <laughs> so it didn't make sense yeah. why she couldn't sleep. That's what, that's what it had felt like, this vague mm. thing. With the, with the pedophile, with situations that would come up in the children's home, mm-hmm. with my daughter approaching the age that I had been when I first began um, getting abused, which was when she was three and when my son Levi was one, I started having some problems. Yeah. Uh, really, really bad depression. I started remembering some things. So up until that point, you didn't have... Up until that point, I... Like, were, I, you, were I, you aware that it had happened? N- nope. Okay. No, no, I had a, like a complete disconnect. Okay. And so I wasn't, I had an inkling, like I started to think, oh, there's something underneath the mattresses. What uh-huh. is it? That looks like a pee under the bed, you know, but, but I just, I didn't really think, no, I, I haven't been abused. I grew up in a Christian home and, yeah. um, you know, like I, I, how could I have been abused? What, when would there have been opportunity? And and who and how? And and it it seemed like such an incredible idea. I I, I didn't I didn't I didn't really believe yeah. that it had happened to me. And what's interesting about that as and and I'm and I'm really thankful now for the psychiatric background that I have. Mm-hmm. But I think what's really interesting is I have a respect and an appreciation for for timing mm-hmm. and the fact that what we're not able to handle, we're not given access to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's actually, if I'm looking at it from a Christian perspective, I think that's God's mercy, mm-hmm. um, that, that he's not going to give me m- more information, even if it's about my own history, mm-hmm. than I'm able to handle. Why wouldn't I be able to handle it? I had no support system in a foreign country where there was – I just had no support system. Mm-hmm. And even if, if we're looking at it like as, as a scientific sort of Darwinian kind of thing, you're not going to be given access to, to anything that would, would be detrimental to your survival. Yeah. And so like 
I wonder why, why, why did I just like have no clue? It would have probably been helpful in some of my past relationships <laughs> that really went wrong yeah. if I had had any idea that that I was so, so uh, fundamentally affected mm-hmm. by this abuse. But again, I, I, I had no idea. Finally, though, when when I was able to hear that, and only and God knows when that is, mm-hmm. when when can when can I show her this truth? Because we know that God loves truth and God is truth. But since we're not God, we can't handle all of the truth, yeah. <laughs> not all at once, mm-hmm. not all at once. And so that's kind of how I see it. Is I've just kind of been getting bits and pieces. And I've, I've had some puzzle pieces, and then I get a few more puzzle pieces. Mm. As I can digest what's going on, I have learned more. And so when my son was born, some pieces fell into place there. Mm. Again, when Soul turned three, um, more pieces fell into place, remembered more things, had some flashback-type memories, body memories, but just a, a lot of different things where even though I'm not sure what the picture really looks like, there's still more missing pieces mm-hmm. than, than, than present pieces. But to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was significant abuse repeatedly. And it happened early on in my development, mm-hmm. which complicates abuse yeah. when it happens young in life. And that's just because of the way that the brain develops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so things things didn't uh, things were bad for a while, and I was down there and without really resources, but able to acknowledge. Okay, I, I know that things have happened to me, and really just trying to sit and be able to tolerate that and figure out how to go about your day. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but um. I'd say that was 2008, so that was about 11 years ago. Then we moved. We kind of had a hard time. I I did some long-distance counseling. I had a counselor in Nashville, Tennessee that would call me, Mm. and we did that for a while. Um, I went to um, an intense week of therapy with a really wonderful psychologist, Dr. Dan Allender, he has written several books that have been very, very helpful to me in 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 figuring out a lot of this stuff and in not having access really to a therapist. Um, but when we moved back to the U.S. Um, and and we live in Nashville, Tennessee now, but we we still bounce around. So mm-hmm. I feel like we we have several homes, but I spend the majority of time now in Nashville, Tennessee, and I do have a therapist that I see weekly, mm-hmm. and that is. Fundamental. It's been very, very helpful. In the last two years, I have come to the point where I've been able to acknowledge and accept that that not only the the depression and anxiety has been very obvious, even some of the PTSD extreme reactions, Mm -hmm. you know, and things like that have been understandable. But I I really was floored by kind of moving forward with my therapist and. And really diving in and being open to healing to realize, come to realize that I have DID. I don't know what that is. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't think a lot of people know yeah. what DID is. So DID is dissociative identity mm. disorder. And I I hate saying it by its old name because mm-hmm. it's so stigmatizing, but it in the DSM-4 it was um multiple personality disorder. Really? Yes. So that that officially does not exist anymore. That's yeah. it's it's a it's a really ugly sounding disorder. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of misleading mm-hmm. uh, as a title. And dissociative identity disorder it is is just way better. <laughs> um, in essence, when significant trauma happens early on in child development, the ways th- that are available to cope are very limited. Yeah. I mean, you, you, three year olds don't have coping skills. They can't cope with, no, you can't have right. a cookie. Three-year-olds <laughs> scream because they don't have coping yeah. skills. They don't negotiate. They don't ask again later. They they, mm-hmm. they don't have coping skills. Mm-hmm. And so it just often happens, with, especially with sexual abuse, mm-hmm. early, early on in development, that this is the way that it's the response that occurs, I guess, because of a lack of of true coping skills. Mm. But really, it I mean, multiple personalities really is somewhat accurate. Really, the the identity of the person um, becomes segmented or com- compartmentalized, mm-hmm. so that though one part has to be present and accept the brunt of the of of the abuse, the other parts are are free from it. And oh, don't experience so it. So much sense. And so you end up developing these different sets. Yeah. And their all of their experience is is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. What they have been e- e- exposed to as far as their life experience is limited. And therefore the ways that they cope is also limited. I mean, I don't want to make this podcast about DID or about its treatment or, you know, what do you do with that? I'd rather hope that what would stand out is my message that I think is hopeful Mm -hmm. is that not that time heals everything, but just to know that time is a requirement Mm -hmm. to process anything. Just like the Bible says that you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear, I also think that God will not reveal more truth than a person can bear. Mm-hmm. While at times I'm really frustrated with the missing pieces, and I want to know more, and I uh, I want to know who, and I don't want to know some of the things that I do know, yeah. and I do want to know some of the things I don't know. Yeah. But that as things continue to and they don't just fall into a place. I'm working hard. Yeah, you know, yeah. You um, have to do the work. everyone who yeah, you got to do do the work. But instead of feeling frustrated, I I just want to say, oh, I, if I don't know that yet, I just need more time. Mm-hmm. And whatever I don't know that I'm desperately wishing to know, if it's being kept from me, or I'm not getting anything yet. I just have to trust that that's in my best interest for right now. Yeah. And so it does require, I think, a lot of trusting in God, which 
which again, trust is a really, really hard concept for anyone who's been abused, um, of any kind of abuse, that trust is difficult. It's all part of the process. And I guess that I would, would say I'm even grateful for, I'm very grateful for the years of ignorance that I had. Would I really have wanted to know everything that happened to me, would I have wanted to know that in third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade? And mm. and while I'm playing kickball at recess, yeah. like be thinking, oh yeah, that really sucked when that happened, yeah. or or you know, curl into a, a, a ball because I can't cope with what did happen. As a mental health professional, I hope that people hear that mental health issues are very real. Some of them sound very outlandish, mm-hmm. you know, and some of them are confused with spiritual battles. Yeah. And I, I'd like to say, believe people, mm-hmm. believe people, they're the only ones that, that know their experiences. And I do think spirituality can be very helpful. But I also think, please don't hurt someone who's trying to find healing by insinuating that that what they have is a spiritual issue. Right. We definitely want to be spiritually fortified, I think, but also realize like you know, stuff happens in a fallen world and there is fallout from mm-hmm. it. And everyone, regardless of what kind of fallout it is, everyone is bot- battling fallout from mm-hmm. a broken world. And mine happens to be sexual abuse and and DID and everything that comes with that and I think that's I think it's hard I think it's really hard but other people have chronic illness mm-hmm. other people you know have uh, violence in their home mm-hmm. uh, that they can't get away from or whatever it is everyone is dealing with fallout we have it in common and um, if we could just have some compassion and just endorse and legitimize that everyone has fallout, we don't have to, you know, try to negate anyone else's blame so that, it on their faith, lack yeah, of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that's, I guess, kind of at the heart of that is mm-hmm. I I've been shaped by a lot of factors. If I look at my life, number one, um, my mom told me I was going to be the the most stable child in the family, but she <laughs> meant you're going to have a husband and like two kids and, and you're going to own a home and you're going to have a dog and you're going to have, you know, three cars in, in a three car garage and you're going to have an, a manicured lawn and a really neat house. And she just saw my life as very neat and very orderly and very controlled. And my life really doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> you have a husband and two kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I think, uh, I, I guess now when I'm thinking about the impact that sexual abuse has had on my life, I'd say it is large. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is significant. But it's not the only significant thing that has impacted my life. And so, you know, my grandmother, their legacy of mission work, mm-hmm. their love of language, um, my desire to to serve others in the capacity of, of health care, mm-hmm. to serve children, a love of culture, anthropology, all of those things are things that have given me joy in my life and, mm-hmm. and were influenced in my childhood that I thought was so generic and so, you know, not worthy of anyone's scrutiny. And so, yeah, now that I'm, now that I'm thinking on it, 
sexual abuse is is not the only significant influence in no. my life and I and I can see the evidence of that and I'm I'm really grateful for it and I'm grateful for the opportunity to continue to be working through that mm-hmm. and to be asking for more for more truth, more pieces and also grateful at this time in my life in this season that we are back in the US and mm-hmm. that I I'm able to experience and appreciate what a great therapist has to offer um, towards my healing as well. Mm-hmm. So that's who I am. That's mm-hmm. everything I'm aware of in, in my <laughs> in my soul, in my heart to date. 41 years. Yeah. Well done. We have talked about the work that you're doing in therapy to get through not just what happened to you, but the repercussions of it. And I know that takes a spiritual toll. Anything that happens to us takes a spiritual toll. I think probably the biggest question I have where the spiritual aspect is concerned is, have you even thought about forgiving your abuser? Yes. I, I've i thought a lot about that, but it's, it's a bit of a strange situation mm-hmm. for me since I, I don't know who abused me. And, and I'm not sure why like that particular puzzle piece still isn't being revealed for me. It does take a spiritual toll. The last 10 or 15 years, I wish I could say that I had leaned in and depended on my faith and and never despaired mm-hmm. or never been never ha- never thrown a tantrum mm-hmm. towards God or yeah. or whatever. Let's be real. I'll be the first to acknowledge my weakness and I'm not ashamed of of my weakness. I think the God that I that I love understands human weakness. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't if he hadn't chosen to come down to earth and live it like one of us, but he does understand it. And so I don't have shame about my weaknesses. I don't have shame about the anger that I've had at times towards God or the questions or the rage, but I've, I've been kind of a mixed fan of God. (laughs) And I think that does take a toll on your, on, on your spirituality. It also takes a toll on your marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, the God that, that I love and the God that loves me will will not dissociate. Mm. He will not leave the room because I'm acting out or acting ugly or making false accusations or beating my fists against uh, his chest for not protecting me and yeah. keeping me from abuse. He will stay present for all of that. And that is a really strong God. That is a very remarkable God and it and and it gives me an example of that's what I'm that's what I'm striving for mm-hmm. in particular with my situation with DID I'm trying to learn how to be present instead of instead of evacuating instead of jumping ship or mm-hmm. or letting um, one part handle something so that the others don't have to go through it I'm trying to work on being ever present and and integrated and and cohesive but as far as as forgiveness i i think one of the things before even talking about forgive forgiving the abuser whoever he is mm-hmm. you know question mark before that i think that i really had to deal with the disappointment that i felt between me and god mm. 
there there's a lot of songs, a lot of Christian songs that more or less talk about, you know, like God will never let you down and mm-hmm. he's always there and I understand the sentiment. Um but sometimes it's hard to swallow and sometimes it's hard to to sing. Yeah. Those words. The God that I love and that loves me, I, we we have such a reciprocal relationship. I know that I disappoint God mm. sometimes, and God disappoints me sometimes. I mean, the first disappointment came when the the parents God gave me failed to protect me. Mm. Now, whether that was my parents' fault or not, which it wasn't, doesn't have anything to do with it. God, God didn't protect me from the situation, it's and a wound, yeah. th- those he he stewarded my life to were unable to protect me, and and I have experienced disappointment with God that's significant and it's like the elephant in the room if I don't talk about it and I don't bring it to God and I don't say God I'm really disappointed I don't understand why it had to be like that mm-hmm. I don't understand why you couldn't have intervened or created another way or you know something mm. I'm disappointed that God didn't provide the outcome that I wanted I'm not just afraid for that to just be there and be unresolved. I mean, that's sort of the nature of disappointment is that it it exists and it's it's just there. That to me was that to me was a really significant permission that I gave myself was that I mean like who am I to be disappointed in the perfect God? Mm-hmm. That kind of sounds um both arrogant and blasphemous and and just all things wrong and offensive. It it sounds offensive, but just being very straight I give myself permission to let God know when I'm disappointed Mm -hmm. in Him. (laughs) I was having a conversation about something similar with somebody else. He's not surprised when you confront Him with how you're feeling because He already knows. (laughs) You know, He can handle it because He's so big and perfect. There's nothing that we could say to Him that He can't take. And that is... You know, kind of like when kids treat their parents the worst. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because they know you're going to love them anyway. Yeah. And they can just let it out with yeah. you. There's and, there's safety. Yeah. There's an unconditional love that mm-hmm. that supersedes it all. And that really is, I think, the definition of, of safety to me mm-hmm. is is the unconditional love. And, and God has always had unconditional love yeah. for me. You know, I love Him back imperfectly. Mm-hmm. And that might be disappointing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, he's not going to ghost on me. He's Mm-mm. he's present. He is present. He's not going to dissociate. He's not going to leave the room. He's he's there mm-hmm. for me, um, for you. But I, as far as, you know, whew, forgiving my abuser, I want to say, yes, I believe I've done that. It, it, it it but again i, I not knowing who yeah, i'm i'm forgiving i think makes it a little bit harder to know like have i really i mean it's it's sort of just a nebulous concept right yeah. now instead of a real tangible like reality like do i really i've prayed to god help, let me know i want to remember help me see where is that information bring it to me uh, where is it please i'm ready and I still don't have that information. I'm still not ready. God knows the timing. God knows if I'm ever going to mm-hmm. be in a place where it would serve me positively to know that. Mm-hmm. It, at that time, I think he would show me that. 
if it's never going to be helpful for me to know that information, I realize that I might never know that and I'm okay with not knowing that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think because I'm okay with not knowing, but really what I want to do is know, <laughs> I, I don't want to know so that I can try to press charges or do whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I think I would like to know so that I could specifically forgive mm. in, in, a, in my theoretical way, like... Yeah, I I have. I you know, I, I wouldn't I don't I wanna want anybody to be abused. It it's really a painful thing, but you and I said no one behavior defines our character right. and, and, and defines who we are. I want to be able to treat my abuser the way I would want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't want to be judged on my worst decision or my worst behavior. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think it's fair to judge the abuser on on their worst behavior. What would I do if I knew them, if they were still in my life? I would forgive them. I would. They would probably not be my favorite person. I probably would not pursue a relationship <laughs> yeah. with them. If I had to pursue a relationship with them, I would just have boundaries in place that I felt comfortable with and mm -hmm. would keep me safe and not harbor any ill will. And I think that when what I desire for that person is for whatever hurt they've experienced that has led them to to at times make those bad decisions that hurt other children i'd wish for them to find new ways to cope i'd wish for them to find some healing themselves mm -hmm. and not continue in those practices that would make me happier than anything like if somebody would grant me a wish mm. that 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 abuser could have that healing that i could have that healing but if but if i'm deserving of healing they're also deserving of healing. Wow. They are. Really, really gracious of you to say that. I'm not sure I could. Well, something that has really helped me with that, to really authentically desire that, is not because like I have some extraordinary amount of goodness or, <laughs> or, 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 or grace mm -hmm. to, to extend to others. Really what has, has helped me realize that I really authentically want healing for that person as well as for myself. As much as I want it for myself, I want it for them, is the fact that our children's home, all of the children who are in the children's home are there because they have experienced some significant adverse mm -hmm. event. They've had some kind of significant trauma. Almost all of them have had uh, some kind of sexual trauma, not every single one, but the majority, mm -hmm. and it's significant, and it's happened early on in their life. Some of the kids in our home who have been victims of abuse have become perpetrators of abuse. Mm -hmm. That's something that we have to deal with in our home. That's a real. That's happening. That's happening in any children's home around mm -hmm. the world, and and thinking that that is not occurring is um, naive. Yeah. I love the children. I I love I know them. I've known them as victims first mm -hmm. and perpetrators later. Yeah. Living in our homes mm -hmm. and addressing those behaviors and I just I I love them. Yeah. I, and and so victim or perpetrator, I love them and I want healing for them. I want healing for them as a victim. I want healing for them as a perpetrator. Why do some of them perpetrate the same abuse uh, onto others and why don't others? I'm not sure mm -hmm. why, but they're not 
monsters. I think it's a lot easier for us to go to that place where we can dismiss the humanity yeah. in people who who choose maybe monstrous behaviors. But when you love somebody, you, you can't categorically dismiss them as a monster. And since I know that God made all humans in in His image when we're all His children, I, like I, I realize, like that is that's just a wrong attitude and mm-hmm. I can't continue to own that attitude and it's the children in the children's home and and through their struggles and through walking with them and and realizing there's a lot on both sides of this you just want healing yeah yeah so anyone who knows me knows how much I love mission Lazarus I'm so glad <laughs> yes oh I talk about mission Lazarus every chance I get I love that so you kind of alluded to Mission Lazarus, without using the name, when you talked about your time in Honduras. So just tell us a little something about Mission Lazarus. Mission Lazarus is like our fir- is like Jared and my our firstborn. <laughs> Before there was Soul and Levi, there was, you know, a missionary couple in southern Honduras that decided to create this organization because there were just too many opportunities around us. And really it came about because we we were feeling very uneasy about, as a couple, handling all of the donations coming in and reporting <laughs> back and just transparency. And so really the reason that the organization began was because we said we really need an official legal mechanism that can provide the accountability to really create kind of partnership. We've just yeah. got friends and family giving money, but hey, like you we want to make you part of something. So this is the something that's being created and my role has has evolved over the years, but I would say it it never started as a two-man show. It wasn't <laughs> Jared and me from the beginning. It was Jared and me and a preacher, a local preacher. So it it started with with partnership with with a spiritual leader, mm-hmm. and grew from there. And so um, as leadership, as local leadership has developed and deepened, we've been able to take a, a step back, but we've been involved in all aspects of the mission. And and when I say all aspects, we really believe in, in holistic care. And that has meant that we run clinics, and we have schools, and we have our children's homes, and we um, have created a network of churches so that there is a, a church support among the members and the preachers, and so that we can employ our time in um, both development and in discipleship. Not to spend a lot of time here, but just to, to be really succinctly uh, put, put what our mission does, we want to engage with people right where they are. And we're working with very, very rural people in both Honduras and also in the country of Haiti. And we've chosen rural places because there's a whole lot of other NGOs working in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're we wanting to go where we're not competing with anybody else and we're not duplicating efforts, but we're really offering services to people who really don't have any. And mm-hmm. so people often ask, like, why do you have that clinic up there <laughs> randomly <laughs> on that mountain? Because there was no clinic there, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of people there with a lot of needs, and so that's our joy is to serve not very educated, but very passionate people. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
use uh, meet, meeting their most immediate needs through development is what gives us the basis to build a deeper relationship, which then is able to move into areas of discipleship. Mm-hmm. And so we really like to create relationships with with the people that we interact with so that we're not having uh, a lot of one-off encounters, but that we're able to go deep with people. And when you are able to go deep with people and um, when some of their more immediate needs are met and they're no longer distracted by whether or not there's food to feed the family or whether they have a safe and dry place to live, then they do begin to contemplate more of their inner uh, needs, mm-hmm. you know, such as what what is my purpose and mm-hmm. what is my value and is there really a God and what is He like? Is He good? If He is, what am I missing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we really are just trying to create a space for people to encounter God in an authentic way that is positive for them, yeah. so that they so that they have more curiosity about. There might be something to this God thing. He, he might not be, you know, a hoax. It might not mm-hmm. be just some invention of of people. And, it, and it's actually relevant. Like the idea that I would want to get to know God, why would I want to do that? Well, because it can impact your life yeah. greatly. And so we we really want to see transformation in people's lives. And I think that that transformation happens now as well as in eternity and for eternity. I enjoy all the aspects of what mm-hmm. we do. I'm not involved in all aspects. Mm-hmm. I am the the US-based medical director. We have three medical clinics and a dental clinic um, in Honduras, and we have um, five children's homes. And I, I'm more involved in the administration and kind of auditing kind of our operations and mm-hmm. making sure that we are staying within our our standards and meeting expectations um, and really that we're going the extra mile. As a mission, we have applied the philosophy that I feel like God um, revealed to me early, early on the ground is is that let's not run away from the hard stuff. Even mm-hmm. if we can't solve it, let's walk with people through what they're going through. And so that that always leads to amazing opportunities and, and deep relationships. And so now that we're US-based, I think we grieve very much <laughs> the daily interaction and the connection and the relationships that we formed throughout the years that we lived there. Mm-hmm. But we still, we still stay connected. Um, but we're also really proud of the national leadership mm-hmm. that's has been developed over the years through positive and negative experiences, but especially has benefited from Christian leaders in the U.S. who've come to give seminars, and we do a, a lot with our leadership because we mm-hmm. really want to develop um, Christian leaders. We want to develop competent industry leaders, mm-hmm. um, and we're also involved in generating a lot of our own revenue, and so we have also some businesses that have created jobs in the community, and we've got to know how to run those well. Mm-hmm. If we want to turn a profit, that we can then put back into the mission so that we're not relying 100% on donor dollars. Mm-hmm. I'll put a plug in just to that end that one of the things that I'm most excited about in that area is our leather goods. 
Um, We've got a wonderful (laughs) online store. I'll put that in the show notes. Great. And I'll give you you a coupon code so that if anyone's interested to come and um, look for Christmas gifts or something, I promise you we have the most beautiful and durable leather bags Mm -hmm. that you'll find anywhere. And they're made, handmade by artisans who have learned their craft through our mission and are now employed by the mission. The proceeds go back into the vocational program, which is helping to train new artisans. So it's a great bag and a great cause. It's our our baby, our firstborn, Mission Lazarus, uh, (laughs) and its affiliate organizations. Thank you so much for letting me put a plug in for it. (laughs) I'll keep on plugging it. And I will say, I haven't known Mission Lazarus from the beginning. It's probably been close to 11 years Ten and a half. That's a long time. It is. <laughs> but I was going to say, like, the growth I have seen. Okay, when I first went to Mission Lazarus, it was not my first mission trip. But it felt like it because it was like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be done. Not the rich American comes down and builds something and takes cute pictures and goes home. But you're already, you, as in this culture that I am, a foreigner in, is already trying to do better, trying to make a better life, trying to help each other. And I get to come give you a hand for a few days and learn what Christ really did. Yeah. He didn't just drop in somewhere and sprinkle goodies around and leave. He submersed himself in people's lives. And that's what they're doing for each other. Yeah. And the growth I have seen from, I'll get teary talking about it, but seeing pictures like of Juan and people that I've known since the first time I went down there, Juan went from bricklayer to like super missionary now. Yeah. He's going to other places and doing the same. I just, and that made no sense to everybody listening because they don't know Juan, but he is somebody that taught me how to lay brick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> years and years ago, and to get to see what he's doing now and all of the leadership, just how they have just really stepped up to the plate and how and watching the baton be passed from you and Jared and other American leaders to these Hondurans who are completely invested in their own community. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a bit unorthodox. Um, from the mainstream mm-hmm. experience, but you know, I I believe it's healthy and effective, mm-hmm. and we're not the only ones who follow that kind of model. Right. It feels like we're the only ones, yeah. <laughs> but there are a lot of other organizations mm-hmm. doing great work that want to empower and make a lasting impact. And realize, I'm one of the temporary tools. Yes, but they're the they're they're permanently embedded. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's why one of the the most beneficial things that our our volunteers do is is come and invest directly in our leadership. Mm-hmm. And so um, we love that. We're actually trying to plan more and more of that spiritual development, more leadership development, and really just covet. Uh, any it, skills. If anyone mm-hmm. is interested, has that gifting, uh, uh, is passionate for teaching, we we would love to to talk to those individuals and set set things up because we're doing that about three or four times a year mm-hmm. with with 
major, major emphasis on our on our current leaders. And then we're trying to identify kind of our tomorrow le- tomorrow's leaders. Mm, yeah. And and we're including them also in that training just because we want them to we want to go ahead and really invest in them mm-hmm. um, so that they'll really want to invest in a good future mm-hmm. um, with with Mission Lazarus. That's smart. And that's, what, that's one of the things I love about Mission Lazarus is instead of just like putting out fires everywhere and throwing money at people, yeah. you, you are very thoughtful yeah. about the work that you do. And yes, you'll put out fires if need be, but you're going to be very thoughtful about the big picture. And it shows. Oh, in the thank way. you. I, mean, I like to hear that. Lives are, you are on the front line, and I'm sure sometimes it's hard to see the big picture sometimes. Yeah. Hard to see the things that are yeah. really good. And I haven't been in a while because, you know, little kid and all that fun <laughs> stuff. But thanks to social media, yeah. <laughs> I get to see a lot of things and a lot of faces I recognize and a lot of places I recognize. And I can tell you, you have made huge differences in individual lives and in that area as a whole. And the amount of respect that Mission Lazarus, the name Mission Lazarus gets down there is a testament to to the good things that you're doing. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. So the last question that I always ask is because of your story, what do you know about God that the rest of us may not know? The tribute that really, really stands out to me about God that is not one that previously I would put at the top of my list, mm-hmm. you know, as characteristics of God that I really appreciate or that I benefit from, um, and it's gentleness. Mm. And you, you, you read about, you know, that Jesus is meek and lowly, or he's he's timid or gentle or whatever. But I appreciate the gentleness of God, given my story and really kind of the the blessed ignorance that I was in for, for many years, just having had no recollection of my abuse, um, I think that made me highly functional mm-hmm. through those years. And so I'm thankful that I had no idea. And at the same time, I'm really thankful for the gentility that God employed to start bringing that information and that experience into my awareness yeah. in in tiny, I mean, not even bite-sized portions, but mm-hmm. like pureed nuggets, <laughs> you know, um, of just a little bit of, of information. There was no gentler or kinder way to tell me a horror story. You oh, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know the entirety of it. Um, and not only that, <laughs> for me to know that what was meant f- to harm me and mark me in destructive ways, that some reconstruction um, is possible and mm. it's worth fighting for, and that that process also is going to be long, mm. somehow I I would call it a gentle and excruciating process. Yeah. But like uh, to choose to kind of look at some of this stuff that has been so hurtful in your life rather than just decide you'd you'd rather it just, you know, stay a- outside of of your awareness. It's a daunting kind of a journey. And I mean, I, I think it is really really difficult, but I know that 
it is as gentle a journey as God can make it for me. Yeah. And that's why it's slow. Mm-hmm. So there, there are moments, I think especially as Americans with all of our technology and our fast food and whatever, like we are so geared toward instant gratification. We don't even realize that we're geared toward instant gratification. Yeah. But I want healing and I want it right yeah. now and I want it complete yeah. so that I don't have to live another day of life in the limbo space of I'm in the process of healing my brokenness. Mm-hmm. Don't I just, can we just go straight fast forward to I'm healed from all brokenness <laughs> so that I can live the next 40 years of my life in peace mm. and happiness and without daily struggle. <laughs> I have a feeling maybe, you know, if I prayed that prayer, it'd be the kind of thing where God would be like, you don't really know what you're asking <laughs> you don't for. Want that. You don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you you couldn't, you just couldn't handle it. And so it is a long process and it does feel excruciating, but it's, it's in order to be gentle. Mm-hmm. And g- being gentle is, I think, gracious and merciful. Mm-hmm. And so it helps me to remember that God is gentle and He's gentle for my good and for my benefit because a Frankly, you can get really discouraged at what feels like lack of progress mm-hmm. or what feels like I'm moving at a snail's pace. You know, and I'm and every day that I go unhealed is another day of collateral damage <laughs> in my family, you yeah. know? And so just to be able to say, remember what seems slow is really God just being gentle with with your fragility, mm-hmm. you know, with your with your weakness, with your with your heart, with your emotions, and not giving you more than than you can bear. I love that you said gentle, because so many times while we were talking, you mentioned something about is giving you an opportunity to do something, and you say no, he won't force you. And I thought, yeah, God's a gentleman. And then later mm-hmm. you were talking about you know, pounding on his chest and being angry at him and he can handle it. And I, and I thought again, yeah, God's a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, that's what you said, that that's yeah. what you know about God. I love yeah. that. Well, that was a lot. Ooh, girl, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot for you to trust me with. So thank you for allowing me to honor your story. Yeah, thank you for the invitation and for being of safe. Course, of course. And I do want to just brag on you a little bit. When you first started talking and you talked about feeling ordinary, that is never a word (laughs) in the years that I've known you that I would use. You're an extraordinary person in a lot of ways. I have looked up to you since I met you and have just every time I feel like I get to pretend like I'm your friend. Which are we friends. are friends. You're my, you're my but, Alabama friend. <laughs> but I just always feel like oh, I get to be Allie's friend today. Or, you know, it's just, Aww. it's an honor to be your friend, I guess is what I'm saying. Oh, no, it isn't. But and it's I, an honor to have <laughs> friends. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. And I am grateful that our paths crossed in Central America and again back here in the U.S. And I hope they continue crossing yeah. for a long time. And I am so excited that my friends who listen get to hear straight from the horse's mouth about Mission Lazarus. And I need to have you and Jared back together sometime and just tell us all about the ins and outs (laughs) of Mission Lazarus. Well, we'll listen to Jared tell us. That's right. I won't get a word in edgewise. (laughs) No, that's why I needed to have you here alone first. First. Yeah, I got first. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mandy. 
I just love her. And I am so thankful for how candid and open and unashamed she is to share her story. Sadly, I know there are a lot of people who can relate to her story. If you are one of those people, I am so sorry that those things happened to you. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing Allison's story, either someone who has been through childhood abuse or someone trying to reclaim their mental health, then please share this with them. A lot of people who are dealing with these things suffer in silence, so I'm so thankful that Allison was willing to share so openly. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for following on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast and leaving reviews. These stories need to be heard and need to be honored. And I am honored to be able to bring these powerful stories and testimonies to you. Allison has agreed to give us a discount on items from Mission Lazarus Artisan Goods. The holidays are just around the corner, so I would take advantage of this. I'm going to take advantage of this myself and start some Christmas shopping. And as always, I leave you with this blessing from 1 Kings 8. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord, our God, to live by His decrees and obey His commands at this time.